Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to our radio family as we gather together for another message from God's Holy Word. We're continuing our study of the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. To open today's message, let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The scriptures make it clear that God's word never falls upon the human ear without producing some effect. God's word either softens or hardens. Just as the same rays of the sun both soften wax and harden clay, so the word of God both softens the yielding heart and hardens the resisting, uncooperating heart. Those who hear the word of God those who are exposed to the light of the gospel, yet who turn from it and take pleasure in unrighteousness, are hardened in their hearts, and they become gullible to falsehood. When Moses contended with Pharaoh, just preceding the Exodus, he presented the word of the God of creation to this great monarch. Pharaoh refused obedience to the commandments of Jehovah. We are told in the narrative, Jehovah hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart was a heart of clay, and the illumination of God's word produced hardening rather than softening. Had that great ruler had a heart of wax, the word of God would have had a softening effect. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He disobeyed the message of God's prophet. He believed the lies of his magicians, Satan's prophets, and he suffered the judgment of God. When King Saul chose to ignore and disobey the word of Jehovah, we're told that an evil spirit from the Lord was sent upon him. That is, by God's permission, a demonic spirit of Satan's army of evil was permitted to come upon Saul. That demon spirit played upon Saul's gullibility and deluded Israel's first king into thinking he could defy God. Saul felt that he could eliminate David, the one whom he knew was God's chosen and anointed successor to the throne of Israel. Saul was obsessed with the thought of killing David, an obsession that eventually led to his own destruction. In 1 Kings chapter 22, we have the story of the unfortunate alliance formed between King Jehoshaphat of Judah and King Ahab of Israel as these two kings went up to do battle with the king of Syria. In order that he might convince Jehoshaphat that the Lord was behind this venture, Ahab called together his false prophets. To a man, each of these prophesied that Ahab would win, and that's what Ahab wanted to hear. They all said, Go up to battle with the king of Syria. God will deliver him into your hands. But Jehoshaphat, not being quite convinced of the validity of this mass prophecy, asked, Is there not a prophet of Jehovah besides that we might inquire of him? Ahab's answer was, There is yet one man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of Jehovah, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Jehoshaphat wanted to hear what Micaiah had to say, and, as Ahab had predicted, this true prophet of God prophesied disaster for the venture. Jehoshaphat knew that he had truly heard the word of God, yet he rejected it. He wanted to make this unholy alliance with Ahab, 
So he looked about to find some justification for his deliberate disobedience to the Lord. When Jehoshaphat had thus deliberately turned from his word, then God sent him strong delusion that he should believe the lie. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 20 through 23, we find the description of a heavenly scene that was revealed to Micaiah and that's described in Micaiah's words. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said on this manner, and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit, and stood before the Lord, and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said unto him, Wherewith? And he said, I will go forth, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, Thou shalt persuade him, and prevail also. Go forth, and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord hath put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these thy prophets, and the Lord hath spoken evil concerning thee. The Lord sent strong delusion to Ahab and Jehoshaphat, so that they might feel justified in their self-chosen path to destruction. And similarly, the Apostle Paul says that God will send strong delusion to those of the earth who persist in denying his word and taking pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the day of God's grace. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is being proclaimed throughout the entire earth. Those who will may come to him and receive forgiveness for their sins. By faith in him, they may be regenerated to eternal life. He himself has died for their sins. Eternal life in him is available without money and without price. In this age of God's grace, God is not in the process of bringing judgment upon the earth, but rather he's holding back that judgment, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But as the Apostle Peter has told us in his second epistle, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The Apostle Paul is speaking of this time of change in God's policy of dealing with the earth, which is to come coincidentally with Satan's being allowed to bring his man of lawlessness to the forefront, as he describes the atmosphere in which this wicked ruler will enter into his regime of power. Paul's message is, This man's coming and presence is in the sphere of every kind of wicked deception geared to the gullibility of those who are perishing this gullibility being caused by the fact that they did not accept the love of the truth to the end that they might be saved. And because of this, God sends them a deluding influence resulting in their believing the lie in order that they all might be judged who did not believe the truth, but rather took pleasure in wickedness. The age of the church has been the age of the truth. God's word has been freely available to those who will heed it. Satan has been restrained in his deceptive practices, and he has not been allowed to use his occultic power to the maximum extent possible so that he may perform these wonders of falsehood that support the lies of his false theology, his false philosophy, and his false morality. But in spite of this, literally multiplied millions of the earth's population, those who have heard the message of truth, have spurned it because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. With the coming of the man of sin, God will no longer restrain Satan in the usage of his occultic powers. He will then permit the lies that lead to damnation to be freely spread over this world of gullible men. As in the days that King Ahab of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah sought to make an alliance and to conduct a war that was clearly against the revealed will of Jehovah, 
God will again permit lying spirits to go forth into the earth. These lying spirits will promote falsehood in the name of truth, and gullible men and women who formerly were exposed to the truth will accept such falsehood to their own destruction. Satan will be free to exercise every deceit of unrighteousness that is contained among his tricks for leading fallen mankind into the paths of falsehood and destruction. Those who are still in the earth at the coming of the day of the Lord are, for the most part, those who have heard the gospel and who have rejected it. The Apostle Paul has told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51 that all who are saved at the time of the appearing of the Lord to take his church out of the world will be changed into immortal beings with incorruptible bodies, and all who are saved will be caught up to meet him in the air. Thus, there is to be a brief span of time when there is not one single believer left in this earthly sphere. That situation will not last long because the scriptures tell us that the spiritual eyes of many of the nation Israel will be opened and a nation will be born in a day soon after the church is gone. There will be certain Gentiles who will also come to know the Lord largely through the ministry of the 144,000 saved and sealed Israelites who will go forth as the preachers of the gospel of the kingdom. But the vast majority of the population of the earth will consist of those who have heard the message of God's grace during this age of the church, but who have rejected it because they took pleasure in unrighteousness. It is to these that God will send the deluding influence to cause them to believe the lie. By removing his restraining power, God will permit those lying spirits to deceive with all the tools and all the power that's available to them through their occultic power. And in so permitting these lying spirits to come upon the earth, God is, in effect, sending them. Their efforts will be directed primarily toward those who have heard the message of the gospel, yet have rejected it during the time when the church was present in the earth. The Apostle Paul says that the man of lawlessness will come in every deceit of unrighteousness geared to the gullibility of them that are perishing because the love of the truth they receive not for them to be saved. If they receive not the love of the truth, then this means that they have been given the opportunity to receive the love of the truth, but they have rejected this opportunity. Once again, my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I appreciate your inviting me into your home or your car or your place of business so that we can, through the medium of radio, share another 15 minutes around the Word of God. Our subject today is our continuing study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me go directly into our message by first reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 10 through 12. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned 
who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he uses this expression, the love of the truth? This is a rather unusual expression. Why does Paul not just say that they receive not the truth? What or who is the love of the truth? This expression is a designation of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the love, the agape of the truth. The Apostle John tells us both that God is love, God is agape, and that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the love, the agape of the truth, and it is he whom these lost ones rejected. It will be the great so-called civilized nations of the earth the nations where the gospel has been widely preached, yet also where the gospel has been widely rejected, that will be the prime targets for Satan's deceits of unrighteousness. It will be those nations who band together to receive Antichrist, both as world dictator and as the universal deity. It will not be the backward, savage peoples of the world, some of whom who have never even heard the gospel, who are to support Antichrist in his rise to power. It will be those peoples and nations who have been exposed to the preaching of God's word, yet who have turned a deaf ear to it, who will be the targets of these deceits of unrighteousness. They will believe the lie. And it's for this reason that God will send them a deluding influence resulting in error. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's love of the truth, has been preached. But those who are left in the earth have rejected that gospel. Since they rejected the truth, God will give them over to believe the lie. That satanic falsehood is the lie that Satan first spoke to Eve when he came to her in the body of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That is the lie. That's the falsehood that Satan has been trying to make mankind believe ever since the original temptation. Thou shalt not surely die. Satan tells men that they can disobey God and get away with it. He tells them that the wages of sin are not death. He says that man may live on in his sins, that there's no judgment for sin, and that man may actually better himself by the way of sin. Satan told Eve that God had lied to her husband Adam. God had said to Adam concerning the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But Satan told Eve, Thou shalt not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Satan's lie is that God is withholding something that would actually benefit man. According to Satan's lie, experimental knowledge of good and evil would place man on the same plane as God. Indeed, men would become as gods. 
Satan said that men themselves are divine. Men can become gods if they just throw off all the restraints that the God of creation has placed upon them. In this, we also have Satan's great lie of the end time. This is the lie of the Antichrist. A part of the theme of this coming man of sin is that there is no judgment after death. In this present day, that's also the theme of the many life after death experiences that are currently receiving so much publicity. These experiences are very much a part of the wonders of falsehood that the Apostle Paul warns us will accompany the coming of the man of sin. The results of Satan's big lie will be overwhelming. The vast majority of those still present in the earth who were enlightened by the gospel message during this age of the church will be totally deluded by the strong satanic influence that God has permitted to come upon the earth. They will die in their sins. They will not have accepted the blessed substitute, the love of the truth, the one who bore their judgment at the hand of God during those awful hours on the cross. So they will bear their own judgment before him at the great white throne. There are many today who read these words of Paul and come to the conclusion that no one who has heard the message of the gospel preached in this day while the church is still on the earth will be saved during the tribulation period. It is true that God's Holy Spirit caused Paul to write and for this cause, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, the truth of the gospel, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The words, they all, are quite strong. It could be that these words do specify that all who have been exposed to the gospel during this present age and who have not responded to it in a positive way will go through the tribulation still without receiving Christ. Their eyes will be blinded by the strong deluding influence that God will permit to come into the earth. This is a chilling thought and it heavily emphasizes the importance of repenting of one's sins and of receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior while this acceptable year of the Lord is still upon the earth. When the church is gone and when Satan's man of sin has been revealed, it will no longer be the acceptable year of the Lord. It will then be the day of vengeance of our God. Conditions in the earth will be much different and Satan's power to blind will be much stronger. One today who rejects Christ because he finds pleasure in unrighteousness and who feels that he will have further chance to receive him when the tribulation has come upon the earth should consider very carefully these words of Paul, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Although this passage does indicate that it will be extremely difficult for one who has neglected the message of the gospel during this acceptable year of the Lord to come to Christ under tribulation conditions, it probably does not totally exclude all who have heard the gospel preached during this age from being saved after that awful time has come upon the earth. Paul says that God is sending them a deluding influence resulting in their believing the lie in order that they all might be judged who did not believe the truth but took delight in wickedness. The qualifying expression, who did not believe the truth but took delight in wickedness, 
does not constitute an exclusive reference back to that time period before the close of the acceptable year of the Lord and the opening of the day of vengeance of our God. It could refer to those who go to their physical deaths during or at the end of the tribulation period. All those who die without having accepted the love of the truth before physical death will be judged for their own sins. But through the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, God may still save some who have not accepted Christ as Savior during this age of grace, even though they have been already exposed to the gospel. This, however, is a very slim hope for one to use as justification for his delay in coming to the Savior. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. The deluding influence that God will allow to come upon the world at the advent of the man of lawlessness will result in a vast majority of the population believing the lie. This is the lie that says that man may ignore God's word and get away with it. It's the lie that says that man has no need for a savior. It's the lie that says that man has not only life, but divine life in his natural state. It's the lie that says that man is slated to progress onward and upward until he himself becomes a god. It's the lie that says that God's word is incorrect, that God has lied to us in the scriptures. It's the lie that denies that God has come in the flesh to die on the cross and thus redeem the lost creation. It's the lie that Satan presented to Eve, and it's the lie that Satan also presented to Cain who then went his own way out of the presence of the Lord. The lie has taken on many outward forms since the time when it was first presented to Eve in the Garden of Eden. It will take on its most elaborate form as Satan's man of sin comes to sit on the throne of the world at the time of his unveiling. This final lie will lead to the ultimate damnation of millions. I see that my time for today is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Let me once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Turn up your radio and give me your undivided attention for the next quarter hour as I bring you this most important message from God's Holy Word. For the past three weeks, we've been involved in a detailed study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's open today's installment of this most important study by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul turns his attention back to those faithful Christians in Thessalonica to whom this letter was originally addressed. However, the words found here are not for those Christians alone, but they are for all of God's people down through this age. 
The Christians in that newly founded assembly at Thessalonica were undergoing great persecution at the hands of satanically directed unbelievers. Paul had earlier assured them that they had not been left behind in the earth to undergo the horrors of the day of the Lord, the tribulation. What they were experiencing was not the tribulation, even though it was a tribulation. They were not to let the circumstances of their present situation cause them to lose sight of the Lord whom they served and to lose faith in his power to keep them under all circumstances. They had remained faithful and they were continuing to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to their unsaved neighbors. Paul, completely assured of the reality of their new birth in Christ, went on to present certain great doctrinal truths concerning their new birth to eternal life. But as for us, we have a sense of moral obligation to be giving thanks to God always concerning you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you out from the rest of mankind for salvation, this choice being within the sphere of the setting apart work of the Spirit and a belief of the truth into which the setting apart work of the Spirit and a belief in the truth. Also, he summoned you through our good news, resulting in your acquisition of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This statement contains a wealth of deep doctrinal truth concerning the nature and the cause of the salvation of those who do belong to the Lord. Those who are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the regenerating power of God's Holy Spirit are the elect of God who were, from the beginning, chosen to salvation through the sanctifying power of God the Holy Spirit as well as their belief in the truth. This is a statement of what theologians often refer to as the doctrine of election. It's a doctrine that has sometimes seemed difficult to the understanding of the new Christian and it has often been a stumbling block to the unsaved. Nevertheless, it is a scriptural doctrine, and the Apostle Paul does not shy away from it. First, the Apostle writes, But we are obligated, that is, obligated in the same way as one who owes a legal debt. We are obligated to give thanks continually for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. The but that opens verse 13 is a conjunction, and it connects this thought back to what's been said in verses 11 and 12. There the apostle had spoken of those who are lost during the time that the tribulation is to be upon the world. He said that they were lost because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. God sent them strong delusion that they might believe the lie, that they all might be judged who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The coordinating conjunction but sets those who are saved by the sanctifying power of God's Holy Spirit and by their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in direct contrast to those who are lost by their own unbelief. Paul acknowledged the power of God that was exercised in the saving of these Thessalonian Christians when he stated his and his missionary associates deep sense of debt to God for his having given them that fruit which their work in Thessalonica had borne. But we are obligated, that is, we owe a debt to God, to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. The power of God had been directly exercised in the conversion of these Thessalonian Christians. 
Paul and Silas and Timothy had preached the gospel, but the Holy Spirit of God had set these men and women apart, and he had called them to the salvation that they now enjoyed. Notice carefully that it was the Spirit of God who called these saved ones to their position in Christ. God's power was necessary to set apart these brethren, but it was not God's power that caused the unsaved of verses 11 and 12 to be lost. It was their own unbelief. Paul puts the entire responsibility for the lost condition of these unsaved ones of the tribulation period upon themselves. Therefore, the Apostle Paul writes that he and his missionary companions feel that they are indebted to God to give thanks always, that is, continually, for those who are the fruit of their evangelism there in Thessalonica. They had been privileged to carry the word of the gospel to that city, and that word had been received by those to whom this letter was addressed. The gospel had fallen into the good ground of the prepared soil of the hearts of these Thessalonians. The word had taken root, and life had sprung forth. realized that it was not their own efforts that had led to the salvation of these who were the fruit of their evangelism. It was God who gave the increase. These missionaries confirm that they actually owed a debt of thankfulness to God for giving them those spiritual children from that great trading center of Thessalonica. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Paul realized that God had chosen that the word of the gospel is to be preached by man, and that it is the preaching of the word that results in the effectual call to salvation. But he realized also that God was there in the person of the Holy Spirit to prepare the hearts of those who had heard the word and to make it possible for the hearers of the word to have the faith to respond. Both the water and the spirit must be present in order to call man from his path of sin and rebellion to God in repentance and faith. These are the two parents of the spiritual birth. The water is symbolic of the word of God. The word must be preached in the power of the Holy Spirit by a human messenger of God in order for it to be effectual in the heart. However, the Spirit of God must be there in the heart to prepare the soil, to give that faith necessary for response to the spoken word. Salvation is the work of God, yet this work is accomplished through the spoken word as it's preached by God's messengers. Paul recognized that it was the power of God that had brought about the effectual salvation of these Thessalonian Christians. He also recognized that it was himself and his companions in the ministry whom God had chosen to carry the word to these newly reborn ones. He was thankful to God for the great privilege granted him to preach the word as it was used in the salvation of these brethren beloved of the Lord. Paul also recognized the reality of the eternal life that had been imparted to those to whom this letter was originally sent when he addressed them as brethren beloved of the Lord. These Thessalonian Christians were Paul's brethren, not through physical birth, but through spiritual birth. They had all been born of the same spiritual parents, and therefore they were brethren in the family of God. Paul, his missionary companions, and all those faithful believers of Thessalonica had been born into the family of God by the power of God through their faith in God. This is true of all Christians down through the centuries of this age of grace.
The Apostle John tells us of this way of the new birth in verses 12 and 13 of the first chapter of his gospel. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those Thessalonian Christians had received him in faith, and therefore they had become the children of God through the power of God. Because of this, Paul recognized them as members of the family of God, a family to which he also belonged. They were his brothers and sisters in that spiritual family. Therefore, they were his brethren. Those who are the children of God through the new birth are greatly beloved of God. Paul recognized both his relationship to these Thessalonian Christians and their relationship to God as he addressed them as brethren beloved of the Lord. Friend, could the Apostle Paul have also addressed you as brother beloved of the Lord? He could if you also have exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and thus received the new birth that's bestowed by the Spirit of God. It's simply necessary to put your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have received him, you are one of the elect of God. He chose you for salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world. But if you reject the gospel and continue to reject it until you go to your grave, then you're among those who will be damned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Unsaved friend, won't you receive him today? That is the way to make your calling and election sure. My time is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of the second chapter of uh, Second Thessalonians on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've taken this time away from your busy schedule to join us for another message from God's Holy Word. Our subject today is still the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians. We've been on this study for the past three weeks. We're approaching the end of our chapter, but there are several things that we still need to cover. Let me direct your attention to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. After his address of affection to the saved ones of God, Paul continued on to speak of a relationship to God of these children of God that is outside of time. It's a relationship that extended into eternity past and that our finite minds, which are oriented to a time universe, have difficulty understanding. Nevertheless, this relationship does exist and it is confirmed in Scripture, not only in these verses from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but also in many other passages. It's the relationship spoken of by the doctrine of election, 
the doctrine that assures us that God foreknew before the creation of the universe those who were his from among the children of men. This doctrine has been a stumbling block for many because, to man's logic, the idea that God pre-elected those who were to be his children and that he predestined those who were his elect to become his sons and heirs also has with it a necessary complementary doctrine that God pre-elected other members of the human race to be lost and that he predestined them to eternal judgment in the lake of fire. The doctrine of God's pre-election of those who were to be his own through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is a scriptural doctrine and it cannot be ignored. However, the doctrine that God predestined certain individuals to eternal condemnation is not a scriptural doctrine. On God's plane, the idea of pre-condemnation is not a necessary companion truth to the idea of pre-election. Both the concept of election and the concept of man's free choice to accept or reject the salvation offered through the shed blood of Jesus Christ are compatible on God's plane, even though man's finite mind has difficulty with this great truth. Those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and who have therefore been regenerated to eternal life are among the elect of God. The elect of God were known to God and chosen of God before the creation of the universe. The saved of the earth have had this eternal relationship with God from the beginning. The Apostle Paul says that he has an actual obligation, just like a legal debt, to give thanks to God continually because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In these words, Paul describes the heavenly aspects of the actual mechanics of salvation. The process by which God imparts eternal life to those who are saved are told out by this passage of Scripture. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. God is sovereign, and God had, from the beginning of the creation, chosen those saved ones at Thessalonica for that salvation which they were enjoying. This applies to all Christians down through this age of grace. Those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in Him as their personal Savior can be assured that they were chosen of God in eternity past. They are of the elect. It should be noted that this statement of election immediately follows the concluding statement of Paul's great prophetic discourse concerning the rapture of the church and the revelation of the man of sin. In the concluding statement, found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12, Paul spoke of those who were the lost ones of the tribulation period. He said, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Then in verse 13, the apostle contrasts the salvation of those to whom he is writing with the eternal damnation of those to whom he has just spoken. He said, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So, for the lost, Paul says that they are lost because they believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
But for the saved, Paul says that they are saved because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Notice the contrast. Those who are lost are lost because they rejected the gospel so that they might continue in unrighteousness. Nothing whatsoever is said about God having chosen from the beginning that they should be lost. These lost ones have not been elected to reprobation. But those who are saved have been elected to salvation. This is a contrast that's found in all scriptural passages that in any way deal with the doctrine of election. The companion conclusion that God must have pre-elected all unsaved humanity to condemnation is not scriptural. When one is lost, he is lost because he would not repent of his sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to receive him as personal Savior. But when one is saved, he saved because God hath from the beginning chosen him to salvation through the means of sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Salvation is entirely a work of God, and without the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit of God and his effectual call to the lost sinner, one cannot be saved. Therefore, election is necessary for the salvation of any member of the human race. He has chosen us. We have not chosen him. Yet the scripture says, Whosoever will may come. The scripture also says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is there a contradiction in terms in the scriptures? No, of course there's not. The concepts of election and of man's freedom of choice are not incompatible on God's plane. The concept of pre-election by the sovereignty of God and the concept of man's free will to accept or reject the gospel are two sides of the same coin, and both concepts are compatible in God's sphere of thought. Man's mind is finite and he cannot think above uh, the high thoughts of God. Man cannot save himself. Man cannot even exercise saving faith except that God give him that faith. But on the other hand, those who are lost are not lost because God has refused to save them. They are lost because they would not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. How are we to resolve this seemingly contradiction in the scriptural revelation of the mechanics of God's salvation? The human mind is not capable of totally comprehending it. However, we do have a passage of Scripture which sheds some light on God's sovereign election of the saints, and it does serve to give us a feeble understanding of something that is beyond the comprehension of our finite minds. The passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter opens his first epistle with the words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Peter here speaks of all the saved as being the elect of God, and he says that their salvation came through election by the mechanics of the setting apart, sanctification, of the Holy Spirit of God and the work of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, their faith in the work of the cross. However, Peter says a little more about God's election than does Paul in our Second Thessalonians passage. He says that the saved ones are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. God is outside of time. In fact, God created time as one of the three entities that bound the created triune universe. In the beginning is the moment that time came into existence. 
Before the creation of time, God had knowledge of all things in time. God knew every moment of every life of every man and woman who were ever to be born into the race of Adam at the time of the beginning. He knew the characteristics of the hearts of all individuals of the human race, those hearts that he foresaw to be of a quality that would be softened by his word he chose for eternal life. To those hearts, in the fullness of time, he applies the mechanics of salvation. Not one of those he has chosen will be lost, but to those hearts that he foresaw would never be turned to him, those hearts that would be hardened by the word, he allows them to go their own way to destruction. He did not elect them to eternal condemnation. He simply let them go the way that the quality of the heart directed. We who are saved are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But those who go out of this life without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior are lost because they believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Beloved, don't be a part of this second group. You also can believe unto salvation. Let the gospel message soften your heart, not harden it. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart and claim the salvation that he so freely offers. When you've done that, then you can be assured that you also are among the elect of God. My time for today is almost gone. We'll conclude our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 on the next broadcast. Thank you. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Let me welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've joined us by radio for another study of God's Holy Word. For more than three weeks now, we've been studying the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. Let me open this concluding message of the series by reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good word and work. These words close the second chapter of the Apostle Paul's second epistle to the Thessalonians. Of course, as Paul originally wrote the letter, there were no chapter divisions. Chapter 2 extended on into chapter 3 and the letter continued right down to Paul's closing words of the 18th verse of chapter 3. However, there does seem to be a distinct break in thought between the closing verses of chapter 2 and the opening verses of chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2 appear to contain what Paul had originally intended to be the close of this letter. But the Holy Spirit of God caused the apostle to continue on until he had completed all of those practical words of instruction for the Christian life which are contained in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Chapter 3 of this letter may be thought of as a divinely inspired postscript to a most excellent doctrinal letter.
Verses 13 and 14 deal with the mechanics of God's salvation. What are these mechanics of salvation that are applied to those who are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? The Apostle Paul provides us with an outline. We are chosen to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called us by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sanctified, we believe, he calls, and we obtain glory. The elect have been chosen of God to salvation in eternity past. Then, in the process of time, God brought about their salvation according to the mechanics that he himself had preordained. These mechanics involve the sanctification of the Spirit, the belief of the truth, the calling by the gospel, and the imputing of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the very first process that the apostle brings to our attention is the sanctification of the Spirit. Paul would have us to understand that sanctification is the very first of the divine works that take place in the heart of the one whom God has chosen to salvation. This word appears at the very head of the list of processes that are involved in the salvation of the individual, not only here, but in every passage of Scripture where the Apostle Paul writes on the subject. Although this is contrary to the theology of many today who teach that sanctification of the Spirit comes subsequent to salvation and that it comes as a second work of God's grace, nevertheless, this is the inspired theology of the Apostle Paul. Those who are God's elect are first sanctified, and then they are drawn to God by belief in the truth and by the calling of the Spirit. Sanctification simply means setting apart. When one is sanctified of the Spirit, then that one, through an act of God the Holy Spirit, is set apart for the purposes and workings of God. As the process of salvation begins in the life of one of God's elect, he is first set apart by a divine act of God himself. He is set apart from that which is of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he's prepared for the receiving of that saving faith which also is a gift of God's grace. The believing one is positionally sanctified even before he's justified, declared innocent in the courts of heaven, and even before he's regenerated, given eternal spiritual life as a part of the new creation in Christ. It is true that the scripture also speaks of practical sanctification, which is a continuing process in the lives of all spiritually reborn believers. Those who are the Lord's own are expected to grow progressively toward a walk in this life that is set apart from, sanctified from, the sin and evil of the earth. That is a continuing process in the life of the maturing Christian, and it's a process that is never completed in this life. Practical sanctification also comes through God's grace, but it is not a second work of grace. Scripture is totally devoid of any teaching that relates to sanctification of any classification as a second work of grace. Such a concept is born in the mind of man, not in the mind of God. Paul says that Christians are chosen of God for salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he, God, calls you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what had taken place in the life of each of those individual Thessalonian Christians, and it is what has taken place in the life of every true Christian since that time. 
Through a direct act of the Holy Spirit of God, they were, and we are, set apart for God's usage. When the spiritual work is accomplished, we are given power for belief in the truth. The truth is here used by Paul to contrast with the lie that he spoke of in verse 11. The truth is the Lord himself who is all truth. The truth is both the living and the written word of God. Christians are given power to believe by that act of God which is sanctification of the Spirit. Faith in one who is the way, the truth, and the life is made possible as a gift of God. Then God calls us by the gospel. He, in his sovereignty, has chosen that the gospel is to be proclaimed through the voices of chosen men of God as they preach the word of God. Paul and his companions had been chosen to preach the gospel to these Thessalonian converts. That's why he says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. With the call of the gospel gone out, those who were the sanctified ones gladly received it. They were gloriously saved. They're slated for the attaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The final fulfillment of this last part of salvation awaits the time of the personal presence of the Lord, but it is a certainty for those who are his. Now, in verse 15, Paul writes, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Paul says, Brethren, because of that so great salvation that has come to you by the miraculous working of God, and because of your sure reward in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, stand fast in the pure word of God. Hold on to that which has been given to you. Do not depart from the truth which has been revealed once and for all to you. Do not be swayed by false teachers. Continue on in the truth. Whether your revelation came by word, that is, by the oral teaching of Paul, Silas, and Timothy when they were personally present with the Thessalonian Christians, or by our epistle, that is, by the written teaching of these two inspired epistles which Paul had sent to them, you are to stand fast in it. These children of God were not to be moved by every wind of false doctrine that came their way. Now, Paul says, stand fast. Do not be moved or swayed in your testimony or in your walk by any wisp of false doctrine that comes to you. You have had the doctrines of the faith once and for all delivered to you. Hold the traditions, the doctrines, which you've been taught. Do not apostatize from these doctrines as the enemy works to bring about your confusion. God's word does not change. The doctrines of the faith are now yours. Some of our teaching was done by word, that is, by oral teaching in your personal presence. Some has been done by inspired epistle. You are to take the total of all the doctrines that have come to you by these two methods of communication and stand solid in them. These are exhortations for all Christians down through the age. Satan has continued to assault God's people with strange new doctrines that have come by spiritual revelation, revelation by lying spirits, word of mouth by false teachers, and by written epistles that have been falsely accredited to the apostle. Cults have sprung up, and the teachings of these cults involved damnable heresies, heresies that, if believed, could not possibly permit the salvation of those who believed them. We're living in a day of apostasy where, under the titles of modernism and ecumenicalism, the great truths of the faith are being rapidly eroded away. Paul's exhortation is, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught. 
Paul then closes this main body of his letter with the words, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope, through grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This prayer of the Apostle Paul is for all Christians down through this age. Both God the Son and God the Father are with us, guiding our paths and giving us comfort in every circumstance. This guidance and comfort comes not because of our merit, but through God's grace. He is ever with us to comfort us and to guide us to that certain destination. My time for today is almost gone. On the next broadcast, we'll start a study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Until our next broadcast, this is Wayne Carver declaring God's basic message to you. The Bible stands. The Bible stands every day we give it for its author is divine. By grace alone I expect to live it and to prove it and make it mine. The Bible stands, though the hills may tumble, it will firmly stand. When the earth shall crumble, I will plant my feet on its firm foundation for the Bible. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation for the program is sponsored by the Bible Stands Radio Broadcast, Post Office Box 690008, San Antonio, Texas, 78269.